Hey, have you ever um, been up late at night thinking about eternal things, thinking about your walk with the Lord, and ever in your Christian walk had the thought, am I really saved? Like, did I do this the right way? I know the story of when I was a little kid and I trusted in what Jesus did and I believed in him, but was I, uh, was I sincere enough? Well, my life, you know, at this point in, in my walk with him, like, I feel like I probably should be better, more sanctified, doing good works. How do I know that it's enough to show that I actually did believe in him? If you're like 99.5% of Christians out there, you've had these thoughts before. And if you're not, you, the coffee's in the back, you can go. That's fine, right? <laughs> but we worry about things that are important to us, and our salvation is really important to us. And we want to make sure we know we're going to heaven when we die. Amen? This is a big deal. And Jesus came so that we can know this. What we're going to talk about this morning is being eternally secure. And there's two different things that we're going to do. One is we're going to look at what Scripture says about this idea. So this is the doctrine of eternal security. Does Scripture teach that once a person's saved, they're always saved, and they can't get out of it, or does it not? And once we establish that it does, in fact, teach that, then we're going to talk about another thing that's called assurance, which is how I'm feeling about my eternal security at a certain point in time in my life. Because if we're honest, all of us have had those times of doubt. And all of us have thought, man, did I do it right? Am I walking right? Is this thing real? How can we know for sure that we're saved? How do we determine the status of our eternal life? So that's where we're going this morning. So grab your Bibles, grab your Bible apps, turn to Matthew chapter 11. Because Jesus has some, sorry, John chapter 11. Jesus has some pretty great stuff to talk about in regards to eternal life. This, uh, to set the context to this, this is when Jesus uh, goes to his good friend's gravesite right after he dies, a few days later, Lazarus. And uh, Jesus uh, meets with Lazarus' sisters. And he says something really interesting to Martha about eternal life. Uh, so John chapter 11, uh, let's start in verse 21. Martha then said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Martha could have given three responses to this. She could have said, no, I don't believe that, which would mean, according to Jesus' words, that she isn't going to live even if she dies, and she's not going to have eternal life. She could have said, I don't know if I believe that, which would have meant she doesn't know if she's going to live and have eternal life after she dies. But in fact, she says, I do believe that. Which, if we take Jesus at his words, it means she will never die. And there's a promise that Jesus makes. If you believe he is who he said he is, then you will never die. Even if you die, you will live. And even if you're living, you'll never die. 
he doubles down on this idea, right? This is awesome for us. And scripture is full of passages just like this, where Jesus makes these outlandish promises about our eternal life. I want to show you a few more. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Now think about this. Jesus doesn't promise that we have the potential to one day cash in on getting eternal life. He doesn't give us a coupon and then we go, hey, I got this coupon. Can I get that eternal life thing? It's not a potential to get it one day. He says, I'm pretty sure has is a present tense verb, right? Whoever believes has it. The essence of our faith is that it is eternal, right? What are you believing? That Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I can receive the gift of eternal life. Well, if you could lose it, it's not eternal. Does that make sense? It's not. And he says you have it. Then he goes on to say, and does not come into judgment, but has passed. Like in the past, it's done. You've passed now out of death into life. How can you then reverse this? Well, I don't think it's a thing that, that can be done. Jesus says in John 6, 37 through 40, All that the Father gives me come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. He says, I lose nothing. Everyone who believes has eternal life. I will raise them up. He says twice, I will raise them up. This is what God wants of me. This is the will of my Father. It is going to happen to those who behold the Son and believe in him. A little later on in the same chapter, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Present tense. Has it. It's not um, hard to understand this concept. But sometimes we add a lot to it and we make it more complicated than the simplicity of what Jesus says. Later on in John 10, 24 through 30, the Jews gathered around Jesus and they were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is pretty blatant about you can't get out of this relationship. <laughs> if you're my sheep, I know you. You'll never perish. You can't be snatched out of the hand. You can't be snatched out of the Father's hand. Secure. Very, very secure. In 1 John 5.13, the first epistle that John wrote after writing the gospel, he says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So not only can we know it from the doctrine, but he says we can personally know we each have it, right? It's not just a concept, but I can know that I have it because God promises that we can have that. Now, the thing is, when you scour all the verses, and I know this, we kind of blitzed through the book of John, there's, there's many, many more verses that talk about eternal security. I've listed some in your notes. But when we look at it, we can deduce the following about eternal security. Whoever believes has present tense eternal life. Whoever believes, Jesus says, will never perish. Whoever believes will not come into judgment. Whoever believes will never be lost. Whoever believes will never be cast out. Whoever believes will never be snatched away. Whoever believes will never die. That sounds secure, right? I mean, that's, that's what it sounds like to me. Very, very secure. So I think that Scripture clearly teaches that if you believe in Jesus, you are eternally secure, and you can't get out of that relationship. And then I walk in my life, and there's days where I feel pretty good about it, and then there's days where I go, ah, how do I feel about it? My assurance wavers at times. And I think it wavers because sometimes I'm looking to the wrong thing to validate my eternal status. There's three ways that Christians throughout history and currently evaluate whether they have eternal security. So they validate their assurance one of three ways. And all three of these ways have some validity to them. But I think one of the ways is the best and the way that we should look to validate if we are eternal secure, eternally secure. So the first way that people look to determine the status of their salvation is by their godly or their sinful behavior. Godly or sinful behavior. And listen, there's a little bit of truth to this. Because the Bible says we're a new creation, right? We're told to bear fruit. We're told to uh, exhibit the fruits of the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And Jesus does change lives. Like we, we always ask people in baptism, has Jesus made a difference in your life? Of course he's made a difference, right? He does make a huge difference. So we can look to how well we're doing in our walk or how well we're not. But the problem with this is it's really hard to quantify how good you have to do to prove that you really are saved. I was reading uh, an old theologian. This guy did such, such good work for the faith. Uh, he was a Cambridge theologian right after the Reformation happened. His name was William Perkins. And this is how he said we need to evaluate our eternal security. And he actually wrote a list for us of the things we need to do in order to know that we really have eternal life. And so I want to read this list to you, and I want you to evaluate how you're doing. Ready? You need to have feelings of bitterness of heart when we've offended God by sin. We need to strive against the flesh. We need to desire God's grace earnestly. We need to consider that God's grace is a most precious jewel. We need to love the ministers of God's word. Hey, I like that. That's good, right? How are you doing loving me? There, that's good. That's good. Six, we need to call upon God earnestly and with tears. Seven, we need to desire Christ's second coming. Eight, we need to avoid all occasions of sin. And nine, we need to persevere in these effects to the last gasp of life. How are you doing with that list? Because honestly, when I read this, I thought, I am not saved if that's the measuring rod. 
Avoiding all occasions of sin. How are you doing at avoiding all occasions of sin? I'll tell you how you're doing. You're not doing it. You're not. None of us are. And you see, the problem is our godly or sinful behavior is really a poor manner in which to assess our assurance, in which to assess if we have eternal life. And here's one of the reasons why. If we're honest about our sin, right, I'm pretty good at not killing people. And I'm, try, I'm trying not to brag here, but I, I have a 100% success rate in that, right? I do. I'm really good at it. And then Jesus comes along and ruins my day. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? Hey, you've heard it said, don't kill people. Done. Got it. But I'm telling you, if you hate your brother in your heart, it's the same to God. Ugh. So I'm, I am a murderer in God's eyes, right? In a sense. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Good, 100%, got that. But if you've looked on a person with lust, it's the same. And, and the people who heard Jesus say this live were like, who can do this? Like, you're crazy. No one can do that. I'm really good at not murdering people on the outside, but on the inside. And so when we start to look at what sin actually is, and it's not just outward behavior, it's inward attitudes, and it's motives, and it's thoughts, it's all these things when we're honest with ourselves, all of us on the spectrum of sin are much closer to an Adolf Hitler than we are to a Jesus Christ. We just are. And so we're over here with all of humanity aside from Christ squabbling over, well, I'm, I'm better than them, I'm better than them, I'm better than them. That probably proves I'm over here. It doesn't. It's kind of crazy to think about it in that way. Our sinful behavior or our godly behavior is not a good way to validate our assurance. We, as Christians, we break up sins into categories, like confessed sin, non-confessed sin, habitual sin, non-habitual sin, bad sin, worse sin, past sin, future sin. You've heard these terms before. I was in a seminary, a Phoenix seminary. I will never forget this class. We were talking about eternal security and assurance. And there was a man there, and he raised his hand, and he said, I do not believe that a real Christian can habitually sin. If you're a real Christian, you won't habitually sin. That's not something that's possible for real Christians to do. And my professor said, okay. He said, let me ask you a question. Uh, how often do you sin a week? And I'm not kidding you. The guy said, I might sin once a week. And that's what we all did. We laughed at him. We thought, what are you talking about? Like, you've sinned 20 million times in this class right now. I feel like you're sinning against me by saying that, right? It was just crazy. He had no concept of what sin is, right? When you start talking about motives and, and your interior person. My professor said, I'm just going to pretend like that's true. And then he said, how old are you? And the guy said, I'm 56 years old. And my professor stepped back and he put his hand on his chin like this. And he said, okay, now let me think. Uh, one sin per week times 52 sins per year times 56 years Sounds pretty habitual to me. <laughs> and the guy went, huh. it's like you realize, like, this, can't, this can't be. And it can't be. Because every day, every week, we're battling the flesh. And sometimes the flesh wins out. And this is what scripture clearly teaches us. But we have a savior 
who is a better high priest than sacrificing lambs and bulls because he doesn't have to go all the time to do it. Every year, uh, the Day of Atonement, he doesn't have to go sacrifice anymore because Hebrews tells us he offered himself one time to take away all sins. This is the promise of what we have. And you know what all sins means? It means habitual, confessed, unconfessed, past, present, future, all. Jesus cousin, John the Baptist, literally pointed him out and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So did not Jesus die for all of our sins at the cross? Habitual, non-habitual, past, present, future. In fact, all of my sin at the time of the cross was future, (laughs) which means he died for my future sins that are still to come. Paul talks about this in Romans. I love this passage. Romans 8, 35 through 39. He says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And look at this. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, which would include you, you're a created thing, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that things present or things to come statement. There's a lot of things going on in our present, And there's a lot of things to come in our future. But I can guarantee you, one of the things to come in your future is more sin. And that can't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus died for it all. He took it all away. And if you've believed in him, even though you live, you will never die. And if you die, you will live. Because his promises are true. When we look to our performance to assess our assurance, it's a really discouraging proposition because when we're honest with ourselves, we're not doing as great as Jesus Christ. And that's where his grace comes in. He paid it all for us. The second way that people uh, evaluate their salvation status is through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think this is probably a better way to do it because now God's involved in the picture, not just me trying to perform well. So the testimony of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3.24 tells us that the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So John says you can know that Christ abides in you by the testimony of the spirit in you. So this is good. I think that this is true. I think that we can do this. I bet as Christians, we've all had this type of an experience. The one issue I see with this is other places in Scripture that talk about walking in the Spirit and following God. Because this Holy Spirit is God, and He's perfect, and I've got no issues with Him. But I've got issues with me, and I'm still part of this equation. Because sometimes I have an inner testimony of bad pizza, and sometimes I have an inner testimony of Robbie's wants and desires. And so how do I know when it's always the Holy Spirit? 
Well, you got to be walking with him. And he says, if you're keeping his commands, you're abiding in him, you can have this. But so often, we don't abide in him, and we don't walk in him. Ephesians 4, 30 through 31 says, this is kind of crazy when you think about it, but listen to what it says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So he's talking to a Christian, isn't he? Because they're sealed for the day of redemption. First of all, they're sealed. They can't get out of it. It's going to happen. And he says, but it's probably a great idea for you not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Wait, a Christian can grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, according to what Paul says, yes. He goes on and then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, why does he need to say that to true Christians? Because we can be malicious slanderers that are angry and wrathful. That's why. He has to tell us this because we can actually act like this. Um, The urging in Scripture to walk in the Spirit, abide in Christ, put off the old man, put on the new man, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. All of these exhortations are to Christians because we as Christians can do those things, and the Bible's saying, don't do that. Be different. Walk in the Spirit. Um, I've never once in my life sat my kids down and had the talk with them about how dangerous kryptonite is. Do you know what kryptonite is? Kryptonite is a fictitious mineral from the planet Krypton, which is Superman's home planet, and it hurts his powers, so he can't be around it. I've never once told my kids about the dangers of kryptonite because it's not real. It's not a real danger in their life. I have sat my kids down and warned them about the dangers of running into the street in front of our house because cars are real and can hurt them. And if they don't listen to my instruction, they can be harmed. If as Christians we can't grieve the Spirit, we can't walk in our old selves. We can't fulfill the desires of the flesh. We can't be malicious. If we, if, if we can't do that as real Christians, then all of these exhortations to not do it are as silly as warning your kids about kryptonite because it's fictitious and it can't be done. But the Bible warns us about these things because as Christians, we can slip into doing these things. And when we do, it's really hard to assess our assurance based on the Holy Spirit that we've grieved in the inner testimony of ourselves. Not because he's wrong, because I'm wrong, and because sin separates us from God, and our relationship with God can be damaged because of what we're doing. However, I don't think our eternal life can be damaged because of what we're doing, which is good. Which takes me to the third way to evaluate our salvation status. And I think this is the best way. We evaluate it based on God's promises. We evaluate it based on God's promises. Our assurance primarily depends on God's ability to keep his promises, not on our ability to keep ours. He promised unconditionally, if you believe, you will have eternal life. We saw it over and over and over and over again. And it's because he's a faithful God who can't lie and can't go back on his promises. I love this passage in 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. Paul is reminding Timothy of this thing, and he says... This is a trustworthy statement. He actually says this a lot throughout First and Second Timothy. He keeps quoting him and saying, you know this, you remember this, whether it was a song or whether it was a creed that they recited at church. 
It's a statement that Timothy knows, and Paul's reminding him of it. And it's really cool because I'm like a Greek freak. I like, uh, I like studying scripture and getting into uh, the structure of it. And this is actually in a poetic form called the chiastic structure. And if you look at it, you'll see there's four different if statements. If we died, if we endure, if we deny, if we are faithless. You see that? If, 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 if. There's four of them. And the way this is structured is in what's called a chiastic structure. You know how in uh, English poetry, we like write a line, we write another line, the third line rhymes with the first line, the fourth line rhymes with the second, right? And there's different ways to do that. They had ways of doing this. And this structure is in an A, B, B, A pattern, which means that the first if and the fourth if go together, and the second if and the third if go together. Does that make sense? So look at what Paul's telling Timothy. This is great. This is a trustworthy statement. First statement, if we died with him, we will also live with him. And that's what we've been reading all throughout Scripture, right? If you believe, right, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If we believe in Jesus, we will live with him. So if we've died, we will also live with him. And then skip down to the fourth if. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Even if your walk doesn't look great, he's faithful to the promise because he can't deny himself. Do you see that? Because he doesn't go back on his promises. Eternally secure. Now, the two middle that go together, look at what it says. If we endure, now that is performance-based, right? If you do a good job, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We'll be rewarded. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Deny us what? The reigning. If you do a good job living your life, there's reward to be had. But living a good life isn't what earns you entrance into heaven because that's secured based on his promises. I think looking to God's promises is really the only stable ground that we have when it comes to knowing where we will go when we die. You know, Jesus uses uh, birth as a language for salvation, right? John 3, Nicodemus comes to him, and he says, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand what that means, right? And we talk about, I'm a born-again Christian. Like, that's the type of Christian I am. It's a big deal to be born again. And we needed to be, because our heredity in Adam is messed up, and we're infected, and we need a new heredity of Christ's righteousness given on our behalf. That's what we have to have. So it makes sense. But Jesus uses his birth analogy. And, and I, I was thinking about this, I can't ever be unborn from my physical parents. I can have a terrible relationship with them. I can never speak to them again. I can divorce myself from my parents. You've seen people do this, right? Like legal divorce from my parents were separated. But your DNA betrays you because you literally can never get out of that relationship, ever. You could kill yourself. It doesn't mean you weren't ever born. And Jesus says that's what it's like you got to be born again. And if you believe in me, you're born again. And I don't think there's a way to get out of it. I don't think there's a way to reverse our birth. I don't think there's a way to say, oh, I'll take it back. Once you're in, you're in because you're eternally secure. But as Christians, we go around and we try to measure our spiritual growth to prove our spiritual birth. Now think about how crazy this would be in the physical world. 
If I walked in and my daughter Greta, she's almost nine years old, she's standing in her room, you know, where they, they do the pencil above the head to see how they grow. And I say, Greta, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm measuring my height to see if I've grown to prove that I was born. I would say, that's not a, I haven't grown taller in a long time, and I'm pretty sure I was still born, right? People grow at different rates. People also, um, some have defects and don't grow, right? But measuring spiritual growth to prove we were born is a, is a dumb idea, spiritually and physically. And so many Christians are focused on, was I born, was I born? And they've got anxiety over it, and they're looking to the wrong thing. They're looking to the performance to prove it, which honestly only causes more anxiety because none of us are performing like Jesus, which then stunts our growth. And this is the thing. So many Christians are focused on, was I born, versus listening to the promises of God and then doing what Scripture says. We need to press on to maturity. Of course you were born. Don't you trust the word? Now press on to maturity. Now grow in your knowledge of Christ. Now get out there and start being who you're supposed to be instead of worrying about whether you were born. But it only happens if we have the promises of God as the way of validating our assurance. So why is this important? Number one, I've met so many Christians who have extreme anxiety over whether they're saved or not. And Satan uses that in our lives to keep us out of following the Lord and reaching people for him. He does, because I'm so worried about my eternal status. Now again, it's a big thing to worry about. But do we trust what Jesus says about us or not? And if we do, now let's start to grow. Let's start to press on to maturity. It's important because it causes a lot of anxiety. But I think it's also important because we cannot do what God called us to do unless we have assurance of our salvation. Assurance frees us up to truly love God and love others. You remember Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now I want to explain why I say this. I think this is so important and it's such a, it's such a distinction of Christianity that no other religion has. Uh, I love, I love, I'm weird, but I love when Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door. <laughs> I love it. I'm like, come on in. Like, before they're done knocking, I'm, I'm opening it, right? You can tell by how they're dressed and what they're holding. I'm like, come on in. Let's go. Bring the watchtower. Come on. Let's, let's do this. And we sit down and we talk, right? I literally go online and I sign up for Mormons to come to my house. I didn't know if you can do that, but you can. You can sign up for Elder and they come and it's awesome. And, and I invite them in and I'm nice and I'm kind and I'm hospitable and we have food and we talk. And one of the things I say to them after we talk for a while is this. I say, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to offend you. But I, I just want you to understand, if your religion is true, you're not here because you care about me. And they, they always look offended. Of course I care about Why would I be here if I didn't care about you? So you don't care about me. You're here trying to earn your way to salvation. You're using me. It's true. And I'm not trying to be mean, but they're using us to earn their salvation. And I say, you have to do this. You have to do good works to get there. And then I tell him this. Listen, if my religion's true, and Jesus died on the cross for me, and he paid the penalty for all my sin, I don't have to share the gospel with you to go to heaven. And I don't have to be nice to you. And I could slap that donut out of your hand right now. And I can still go to heaven when I die. It's true. But because I have assurance, I can actually choose to care about you because I don't have to. 
Do you see that? That's extremely different from everything else. It's the same when it comes to loving God. Muslims have to do the five pillars, right? They got to bow down. They got to pray five times a day towards Mecca. They got to visit Mecca on a pilgrimage. They got to pay 2.5% of their income every year to charitable organizations. They got to fast at Ramadan, right? They got to they do all this stuff to earn their way to heaven. They, gotta, they literally believe there's an angel on each shoulder. One's keeping track of their good deeds. One's keeping track of their bad. And when they stand before Allah, he's going to let them in based on if they did more good than bad. Now think about this. If I was Allah, I would have a conundrum here because these people are being devout to me not because they love me, but because they're trying to save their own skin. Do you see that? We can't truly love God if we're working for our eternal security. He has to do it all in order to allow us the opportunity to choose to love him and to choose to love others because otherwise it's just selfishly motivated. Christianity is distinct. We have been set free. We don't have to do anything to get into heaven because he did everything. But we've been given the opportunity that no other religion in the world has. We can actually love God and love others because we don't have to. Nobody else has that. We need to rest on the promises of God or we start to fall into a works-based method of assurance, which isn't healthy for us and it isn't what God's called us to do. But if we rest on his promises and we truly believe that we're enabled to love because he first loved us, the words of Jesus ring true for us today just like they did for Martha 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in him will live even if they die, and everyone who lives and believes in Jesus will never die. Do you believe this? If the answer is yes, then rest in his promises, because everything else is shaky ground, but his promises can't change, and they're true.